What was Jesus's vision for a happy new year? To answer this question, we turn to the Beatitudes. They are found as the centerpiece of a sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. There are eight Beatitudes, and today we look at the fifth one. And I invite you to listen this day, not just for how these Beatitudes describe our lives, but how they also describe the life of Jesus. From Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after that, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Before the pandemic, I worked out over at the YMCA. And every year when the calendar turned to January, it became difficult to get the treadmill or the elliptical machine that I liked. It was so crowded at the early part of January, but by February, folks would abandon those New Year's resolutions and I could get immediate access to any of my favorite machines. I used to feel guilty, really, those first two weeks of January, looking out across the crowded gym and thinking, don't worry, a lot of these folks will quit in the next couple of weeks. Some folks set out a New Year's resolution, not about exercise, but about dieting. But then about week four of January, we began reading these articles that say something like, weight loss is not about dieting, but about a shift in overall healthy eating patterns. Well, duh, we knew that. So how are we doing with our New Year's resolutions? Have we pivoted from December's patterns to a new year of health and wellness and spiritual focus. Mike Graves reminded us at the beginning of this sermon series on the Beatitudes that the first four Beatitudes are not so much resolutions that we can set out as life goals as they are more descriptions of how God works. For example, just because Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, doesn't mean that any of us would set a resolution to be more sad, more mournful. Or there's that one that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we wouldn't set a resolution to be less spiritually vital. Rather, we want more spiritual energy in our lives. But today, we shift to the fifth beatitude. And scholars have identified that beatitudes 5, 6, 7, and 8 Deuce describe those character traits that are worthy of our imitation. Today we read, Blessed 
are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Next week, blessed are the pure in heart. So these are goals that we could adopt for a happy new year. Instead of weightlifting and dieting, we could set goals to become more merciful or pure in heart. But what exactly is mercy? One of the best images that I have heard to describe mercy comes from the 16th century German mystic and merchant living in Amsterdam. He described this fifth beatitude on the quality of mercy as the act of stretching out the hand to another person. Mercy describes that moment when we reach out a hand to welcome a stranger. Perhaps it's that new friend at school or that new colleague at the office who we know has polar opposite political views from ours, or that refugee family that has just arrived in Kansas City from Afghanistan. The mercy can unfold when we stretch out our hands to forgive a spouse or to forgive a friend who has disappointed us. The outstretched hand, it is what we use to offer a handshake. It is what we use to offer a compassionate embrace. Mercy. It can be that hand extended to serve a hot meal at Micah Ministry or to write a grief note to a neighbor who has recently lost a loved one, a hand used to hammer a nail in a Habitat for Humanity house, providing a safe place, a merciful place for someone else to live. Mercy, then, it encompasses a wide array of actions involving the gracious hospitality that we offer with their own hands. Now, this beatitude about mercy is different from the other seven. It is the only of the eight beatitudes that is perfectly balanced. And by that, I mean that the first half mirrors the second half. In all the other beatitudes we read, if this, then that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But here we read, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. It kind of reminds me of that line from the Lord's Prayer that we read every week. We just said it, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Somehow, what we do in our lives, extending an outstretched hand, connects to what God is doing in our lives, extending an outstretched hand to all of humanity. It's circular, you see. We are merciful and God is merciful. But it isn't about earning mercy. It isn't a tit for tat. We know that because one of the earliest stories we read in the Bible about mercy would remind us that it is not about our good behavior. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And then Moses descends from the mountain to share the two tablets with the Ten Commandments with the people of God. But while Moses was up on the mountain, the people have been busy abandoning God, building a golden calf, worshiping other gods. The, the book of Exodus tells us that while Moses was up there chatting with God, the people were running wild they were stiff-necked people. They broke all the commandments. But Moses intervenes and pleads with God on behalf of the people 
And, and so God says to Moses, come back up the mountain. And Moses goes up again on the mountain and gets two more tablets, the Ten Commandments, brings them back down, delivers them to the people, and this is what Moses says. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And over and over again throughout Scripture, we hear that mantra describing the mercy of God, the character of God. No matter how much the people mess up, no matter how wild they are, no matter how stiff-necked we become, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Jesus is echoing a theme that has been God's theme song for thousands of years. The mercy of God is not dependent upon our good behavior. Mercy, then, is a completely countercultural idea. I love what Wendell Berry says about mercy. Wendell Berry is a poet and a novelist. He says, rats and roaches live by competition under the laws of supply and demand. It is the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. But what does mercy look like in real life? One of the best images Mike used with the children at the 901 service today in our Moment for Children, when he said, children, do you know what the word mercy is? And they looked puzzled. And then he asked them, have you ever heard of a place called Children's Mercy? And they all nodded. They know that Children's Mercy is a place where hurting children, sometimes they themselves go to receive tender compassion. In the TV show Grey's Anatomy, Dr. Gray realizes one day that her father has shown up in the hospital in need of a kidney transplant. But this daughter and father have been estranged for the daughter's entire life. He doesn't deserve her kidney. He knows that. She knows that. Everyone in the hospital knows that. But she donates a kidney to him, and that's mercy. I have in my home a little square pink post-it note inscribed in all capital letters with blue ink pen, I love you. That post-it note has been there for at least a decade. One night when our youngest son was a teenager, we had what we call a very loud and spirited conversation about what would and would not be acceptable in our household. Now, I don't remember the exact topic. I don't remember the details. All I know is that all of us went to bed angry. And the next morning, when my teenage son was out the door early for high school, I went into my bedroom, and I saw there, right by my bedside lamp, right where I reach up every day to turn the lamp on, that pink Post-it note. And I could never take it down. Not when he graduated from high school not when he graduated from college. I, I couldn't remove it. And this past fall, we had our bedroom painted and the floors redone, and we had to move every stick of furniture and every wall piece and everything out of that bedroom, and I got rid of a lot of stuff. 
but I could not get rid of the pink post-it note because it speaks of mercy, of an outstretched hand from a teenage boy to his mom. In her book of essays, Margaret Wrinkle tells the story of a 16-year-old girl who was brutally exploited and manipulated by those who used her body for their own profit and pleasure. In desperation and in self-defense, this 16-year-old girl committed a horrific crime and was sentenced to life in prison. But the governor of Tennessee commuted her sentence. The governor chose mercy. He risked his own political reputation to extend a hand to a girl who he knew had been abused. The girl, 15 years after the crime, now a woman, walked out of that Tennessee prison to begin a new life. And Margaret Wrinkle writes of this moment, she said, we may disagree on what justice looks like, but we will always know mercy when we see it. In a poem written by Scott Carnes, the professor emeritus at the University of Missouri, he describes the mercy that God offers. He writes it in a prayer. Lord, your alleged mercy would be sore appreciated should you deign to have another go at mending such wretchedness as what we have made of things. I love that image of mercy as God mending us, so much within us needs mending, so much within our world needs to be mended. Dorothy Day dedicated her life to stretching out her hand and mending those whose lives were perpetually trapped in poverty. Dorothy Day founded the Catholic Worker Movement in the 1930s in New York City. Dorothy Day began as a journalist advocating for social reform, but she soon set down her pen and used her hands to build houses of hospitality. She bought a building in New York City and took in people who had no place to go, the mentally ill, the addicted, the jobless, the poor, the undesirables, 200 Catholic worker houses sprang up across the United States. There is still one here in Kansas City today. Currently, the Catholic Church is going through a conversation about whether or not to name Dorothy Day as a saint. And, and I don't know about all that, but I know that her life brimmed with acts of mercy. According to an article in The New Yorker, this mercy came early in Dorothy Day's life because when she was about seven years old, the ground beneath her shook. When she and her parents survived the 1904 San Francisco earthquake, every night after that, she was afraid, and her mother had to reassure her and comfort her that she would be okay. And Dorothy watched as the people around her in San Francisco, in that community, came together, reaching out their hands to care for one another with acts of mercy. And she believed that this is how life ought to be all the time, not just in the aftermath of an earthquake, 
And she was able to imitate the mercy of God because she had received the mercy of God. One day I was in my office. A woman, a member of the church, stopped by. She had some things to drop off, but she also mentioned to me that she and her husband were making an extra donation that particular month to the food drive. And then she explained to me that the food drive was so special to them because when her husband was growing up, there were times when his family had to go to the local food bank to get enough food to eat. Mercy. You see, mercy is first received and then given. Mercy flows through us, not because we are good people. Mercy flows through our lives because we first received the mercy of God's outstretched hand taking care of all of us. This beatitude, it it reminds me of the whole purpose of the beatitudes, which is to help all of us shift the way that we see the world and the way we see our own lives. It is not about figuring out how to be merciful. Rather, it is about recognizing how mercy has already been lavished upon us. I saw this when I read the novel Hamnet, a historical novel about Shakespeare's family. In the novel, William Shakespeare's wife, Agnes, is deeply grieved by the life, by the loss of their 11-year-old son, whose name is Hamnet. William and Agnes Shakespeare find their marriage fragmenting. They are drifting apart from one another in the midst of this grief. And William Shakespeare leaves the village where they reside. He leaves the family. He moves to London to begin writing and staging plays. And one day, Agnes realizes that she wants to reach out to try to extend a hand to touch his heart, to know where her husband is. And so she travels to London, and she discovers that he is about to stage a play called Hamlet, which is another way to pronounce Hamnet, their deceased 11-year-old boy. At first, she experiences anger She feels a great sense of betrayal from her husband. Why has he become callous to the family? Why has he turned away from them? But then Agnes goes to the play. And as she watches, she realizes that her husband has written this play to act out his immense grief over the loss of their only son. In the play, Hamlet, the father changes places with the son. So it is the son who lives and the father who dies. The father spares his son this immense suffering. And Agnes stands there gripping the wooden lip of the stage with both of her hands. And she sees her dead son come alive as if resurrected on the stage. And she is overcome by the power of her husband's great love, his compassion, his mercy. And so the author tells us that the final scene is the one in which Agnes reaches out her hand to her husband and her lost son.